Good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you would take your Bibles, this is the time we open God's Word to understand better the thoughts in the mind of God by looking at Scripture. As we come back to our study this morning of 1 Peter chapter 4, that's where you need to turn, 1 Peter chapter 4. I want to say a few more things about some of the things we touched on last week from chapter 4, verse 7, the first part of that verse, and then I will jump into more of the text, but I do want to say a few things that were left unsaid that I feel like need to be said to fill out the picture of what we were talking about last time. The end of all things is near, therefore, that was what we looked at last time, the end of all things is near, therefore. And what I want to do is show you just some other thoughts surrounding that from Peter, but also just to take you and show you some other things that sort of New Testament fills in from that. But this is the incentive that Peter gives, therefore. The incentive that Peter gives for how we should live our lives is because the end is near. When you hear the word salvation in the Bible, a lot of times you are thinking, of what happened to you when you put your faith in Christ, when you were delivered from sin, when you were saved from your sin. You're thinking of that moment when you were justified and you think salvation in those terms, and that is true, and that is an important aspect of salvation. That's called justification. That's past tense. I have been saved. But there's also the present tense of salvation, the present tense of salvation being, I am being saved. So sometimes in the Bible, when it's talking about salvation, it's talking about that process of progressive sanctification. We are being saved from the power of sin. I've been saved from the penalty. I will never be judged for my sin again because of justification, because of that regenerating work of God in my life. I was justified. And now as a Christian, the evidence that I've been justified is now I'm being sanctified or present tense, I'm being set free from the power of sin as I grow in sanctification. And then there's that future tense, that glorification. All of these are the words salvation. One day we'll be saved ultimately. One day we'll be saved from the presence of sin. We will be out of these bodies of sin out of this world of sin, in terms of this present world, things will not always be the way they are. It's the consolation of all things. That's where everything is headed, as we mentioned last time, to that day when we will see Christ and Christ will return. And that is what Peter is referring to, that ultimate salvation. And it's, that's the incentive for the therefore, because he's going to tell, give some instruction following that. But I took you last week to the book of Daniel, and I showed you in the book of Daniel how the world will end in the Old Testament account, world history flowing from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the second coming of Christ. When one like the Son of Man, Daniel 7.13 says, will come and reign and have dominion over the whole earth. I told you about all that last week. And just as it was an encouragement to Daniel's audience to hear a message like that, it would be encouraging to these believers who are going through persecution in Peter's day, 
to hear that God is in control. God is in control and it's all headed somewhere and it always will not always be like this. And so just to hear that God is sovereign and that the, the kings are not sovereign, it looks like they are. It looks like the rulers are in charge. And that no matter how dark it gets, God is still very much in control and in charge. And that's a message for us. We don't need to sit around biting our fingernails in panic, worrying about who's going to win. No matter how bad the score gets, we know what team is going to win. And that was we wanted to think about last time, and I think that's what Peter is trying to encourage them with here as well, that the end is near. And so, the right way to talk about eschatology, I told you, is with the word therefore on the end, because eschatology is one of those topics among Christians that are, is a debated topic. And you just don't want to fill up your minds with information about it. You always want to say, well, why? Why do I need this information? How does it help me? And then you have therefore, because it's to feed my sanctification. It's to somehow uh, strengthen my sanctification. Therefore, turn to Second Peter three nine. I just bring this up because Peter brings it up. Second Peter chapter three verse nine. It says the Lord verse nine of Second Peter chapter three. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. And this is in the context, by the way, of judgment. This is the context of people saying, he hasn't never come. Is he ever going to come? Why is he slow about his coming? He says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's giving more time for people to repent. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is the future. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, then the question is, the therefore, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What, what, what is my responsibility in light of the second coming of Christ? in the light of these truths. Looking for, verse 12, and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Turn over, hold your hand in 1 Peter and, and turn over to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. The Apostle Paul writing here in Romans chapter 13, he said, the night is almost gone. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The day is almost gone, reference to this day is about to leave and the new day is coming. The day of the Lord is coming would be the reference there as well. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But notice, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. 
Then turn to 1 John chapter 3. Flip back over just past Peter, and you come to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has, appeared, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So the second coming of Christ is to have a purifying effect on us, is to motivate us to live holy lives, is to motivate us to... Um, recognize that uh, he's coming back and he will one and it's an accountability really one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ not to be judged for sin but to be judged for works and to be rewarded for works so it gives us perspective and it it's a doctrine that calls us to be to the kind of life that Christ has called us to live now before I move out of this section and, and this I do want to tell you some things that Daniel did not tell us. I wanted to just share with you some things that the New Testament writers say are going to be part of, or events that are going to be a part of the end times. Let me just give you these events. I'm not going to go into detail and explain them. I just want to mention them because they are the viewpoint of our church in terms of what the elders hold to and what we teach. You don't have to agree with these, by the way, to be part of this church. These are just simply the conviction of the elders regarding what events are going to be taking place in these end times. You saw the big picture in Daniel. The New Testament, we believe, fills in some spaces and gives some information that Daniel did not give. That things are going to happen, events are going to be associated with the second coming of Christ. You can read more about these in our uh, What We Teach document on our website. Uh, that's different than our statement of faith. We have a statement of faith that everybody who's a member of our church must affirm. But we have a what we teach document that has other issues like this that certainly people can disagree on uh, and it's not going to affect your eternal salvation in any way. But let me just share with you some convictions that we have regarding events associated with the second coming. And the New Testament gives, more, gives these details. The Old Testament did not. We believe in the imminent rapture of the church. We believe that's the next event on the prophetic calendar. We believe that that's an event when Christians dead and alive are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And he will come like a thief in the night. And we take that from passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and John 14. Like I said, you can go to our website and you can read more about that conviction. This leads to the next event, which will be the judgment seat of Christ, which I just talked about a few minutes ago. This is a time that when believers will then stand before Christ, that the judgment seat to be rewarded for works has nothing to do with a judgment for sin that's already been dealt with at the, at the cross. First Corinthians talks about this. It's a reward for works. And this will lead to the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel is also known as the tribulation. And we believe that there's coming a time on this earth that when the church leaves, that there's going to be a time on earth when God is going to pour out his wrath on the earth. 
You can read all about this in Revelation. See, we hold to a futuristic, premillennial view. And we believe if you just take the Bible literal and grammatically uh, through, you come to these conclusions. That is our conviction. But we teach that when the church leaves, that this, this judgment, wrath of God is going to be poured out. In fact, our, our, our doctrinal, our, our what we teach statement online says, before Christ comes to earth at the second coming, there will be a seven-year period of tribulation when God will primarily focus his attention on ethnic nation of Israel, bringing faith to many in their previously rejected Messiah. In fact, it's going to be the fulfillment. That will bring about the fulfillment when Israel will see the Messiah in whom they pierce, Zechariah says. And all Israel, living at that time, will be saved. We don't believe that ethnic Israel right now is in that condition, but one day they will be. We believe God still has a plan for the nation Israel. We believe Romans 11 teaches that very clearly. All Israel will be saved one day. All ethnic Israel will be saved. We believe the second coming of Christ to the earth will happen seven years after that tribulation. Christ already came and got his church. That's phase one. He came in the air. We met him in the air. But in Revelation, we saw last week, he comes to the earth. The second coming of Christ. Jesus Christ will come back bodily to the earth and set up a literal thousand-year kingdom where he will rule from Jerusalem. We see that in Isaiah, Zechariah, Revelation 19, Revelation 20. And then we believe in the great white throne judgment, also in the book of Revelation. That's a judgment that believers will stand before. And then finally, we believe in the eternal state. Revelation 21, 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I believe we're moving folks from, uh, from Eden to Eden. That's where the world is headed. Ever since we got kicked out of Eden, we've been trying to get back in. Well, one day we'll all be back in who are believers. That's the, that's the message of the entire Bible. That's the meta-narrative of all Scripture. It's all moving in that direction. And we see the culmination of it all is when Christ comes down to earth and establishes that kingdom and reigns for a thousand years and fulfills what he promised the Jews that he would do from Jerusalem. We believe that that is future and that will happen just as he said it will happen. We believe these events that I've just told you can start at any moment. That rapture can happen at any time. The church can be taken at any time. And the domino effect of all of these events that I just gave to you will begin to fall. It will all begin to happen just that way. I believe if you read the Bible from just methodically through, grammatically and literally, that's the conclusion that you will come to. And so, I believe Peter believed that too. <laughs> doesn't fill us in with all those details. We see those in other places in Scripture. But what Peter says, the end is near. That is true. It has been near since in Peter's day. It's even closer today. And so the question is, and this is the incentive for what he's about to say, therefore, therefore, all of these things are about to happen. could happen at any time. We don't set dates because that's not biblical. We just say, these things are on the prophetic calendar and every generation has lived in light of these truths that Christ was going to come back ever since he came back the first time, came the first time and promised to come again. And so let's look now in 1 Peter chapter 4 
beginning in 7b, and we ask the question, what impact should this have on us? What impact should this have in terms of our relationship first with God and second with each other? That's how this is going to flow. What's the impact of all this? If things are not going to keep getting better and better, we believe they're going to get worse and worse. What do we do in the midst of the trials? What do we do in the midst of crisis? What kind of things do we need to be about as we move into these times? First, you see in 4.7, he says, the end of all things is near. Notice, therefore, first thing he says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Two things, sound judgment, sober spirit for, why? For communion with God. Sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. In other words, that my life is so right and so pure that my communion with God is unhindered. You follow me? I cannot tell you how much I want that to be true in my life, what I just said to you. That my life is so right and so pure that my communion with God is unhindered. So many times it's hindered. (laughs) So many times my communion with God is hindered in this fallen fleshly body. Peter says we need to pursue a life that is sound judgment and sober spirit so that we can have unhindered communion with God. That is the first thing he tells us to do. It all has to do first with our relationship with God. We should be impacted by the days in which we're living by the way, in the sense that it should affect our relationship with God. This word sound judgment, sound judgment, there's actually in the Greek, there's a, 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 defi- a meaning that has to do with salvation. And so the idea is keep your mind safe. That's the idea. Keep your mind safe. Don't let your mind be polluted. (laughs) Guard your mind. Protect your mind. Keep it clear. Fix it on spiritual priorities. Notice what Colossians 3 says. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. This is our battleground, isn't it? Isn't it? uh, One of the armors... Uh, the spiritual armor, armor of God, mentioned a couple weeks ago, I guess, the helmet of salvation, I've got to protect my mind. I've got to guard my mind. I've got to keep my mind safe. I'm going to have sound judgment. This is a term that was used of the maniac who was demon-possessed and Christ came and the guy was out of control. He was like a wild animal and Jesus came and healed the guy and Jesus then said, there, he was running around with no clothes on, all this stuff, and, he, and, and Jesus heals him and says he's clothed and in right mind. That's the idea. It says, don't let yourself get swept away by passion and emotion. That's, that's the mantra of our day. If it feels right, if it feels right to me, let your heart be your guide. Don't do that. 
Don't let your feelings determine truth. Don't let your feelings determine your actions. Be of sound judgment. Bring your mind captive to divine truth. Proverbs is right. It says everything proceeds out of the mind. As a man thinks, so he is. What you're thinking about is what you're becoming. We need to be wholly oriented in our mind. And in this world we live in, it's easy to lose spiritual mindedness. This world is trying to squeeze us into their mold. We live in a self-indulgent culture, a pornographic culture, demonically influenced culture. It's difficult to keep your mind safe. Peter says, Peter says, be spiritually sane. Think on holy thought. Think on holy things. Think God's thoughts. It's kind of like I said to you last time, we don't, even in light of the second coming, just thinking or in light of the way the world is going, never forget who's in charge. As believers, we don't want to run around fearful like the world is. We're concerned, yes, but not without hope. We have hope. We know who's going to win. We know where this is going. The verse I memorized early in my Christian life was Joshua 1.8. This is more important to me today than it was then. This book of the law, this book of the law. Joshua, you're getting, you're getting ready to start out on something you don't even know what you're doing. You've got a lot of fears about what you're doing, taking over for a guy like Moses. And he says to him, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. You shall think about it. You shall ponder it. You shall do more than just glance at it. You shall look at it and dig deeper into it. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. This is your roadmap. This is your roadmap. This is how I interpret the world. This is how I interpret reality. God's thoughts. I need, I need God's perspective I need God's mind. That's what sound judgment is. Here's what happens to most of us. We live our lives, don't spend any time in this book, we just live our lives, we live them for ourselves, we face a crisis, and all of a sudden we run to the book and try to figure out some way to get it into my life. Fast. I need a fast cure. No, you don't wait for the crisis. I told you that I desire this so much, I have learned that just wishing for unhindered communion with God, it's more than a wish. If you just wish for it, you'll never get there. Wishing doesn't make it happen. It's just that daily meditating on God's words, guarding my mind every single day, keeping my mind safe, protecting it, keeping it clear. I don't do this well all the time. I don't do this well all the time.
but I long for it so much. I long for it so much. Unhindered communion with God. I believe that's what, I believe when you were saved, that was implanted in you as well, that longing for God. That's what you're looking for. All those other idols are not satisfying you. They're leaving you empty. And you want unhindered communion with God. This is vital. Vital to personal holiness. It's vital to being strong. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let it richly dwell in you. Because this is what protects your mind. This is what protects it and keeps it focused. Don't be swept away by emotions. And that's the temptation of our day. There's a, new, there's a new book, a new idea, a new philosophy on the horizon all the time trying to entice us. Other words that are used for this are prudent and sensible. Prudent and sensible. Wise. Wise as opposed to being a fool. Being a fool. Titus 2, 11 and 13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Notice, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We've got to destroy speculations and let our minds be taken captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And sometimes it may take radical amputation to do this. Sometimes it may take just cutting off something. I mean that in a spiritual sense. I mean that in a physical. It may, be mean, it, it may mean breaking up with a relationship. It may mean social media. It may mean websites you visit. It may mean movies you watch. It may mean places you go, whatever things that pollute the mind, that don't keep the mind safe. And then he puts the word there, sober spirit, and I just don't have a whole lot to say about that except it's a synonym. You see that in verse 7. It's a synonym. Be vigilant and alert. You, you know, soberness is, is uh, sometimes you think of the opposite of drunkenness. You're not alert. You're controlled by something. This is just you're alert to things. You're watching. You have clear, godly thinking you're able to view things from a divine perspective so you'll have a right response to things. And see, then he brings it all to this for the purpose of prayer. Holiness, this is interesting, holiness flows out of communion with God. And, and the word prayer here is actually in the plural because it's a pattern of prayer. It's, it's just pattern of praying. And I don't think he's talking about formal prayers like we do here in the morning. Sometimes. We're not talking about formal prayers. He's talking about daily communing with God. That's what he's talking about. Just unending living in communion with God because I'm thinking God's thoughts. I'm thinking God's priorities. I'm thinking biblically and that sort of sums up the Christian life, thinking God's thoughts every day. I'm in the Word of God, meditating, absorbing it so I can think biblically because I want to be controlled by God's thinking and I want to talk to God. I want to talk God's words back to God. I want to know God's will, all of those things, and they all come from the Word of God. 
And so this is my vertical link in, in, in Christian living right here. In light of the second coming, because the time is near, you just focus first on that vertical link that you have to God. You focus on that relationship with God first. Because you can't do anything else he's about to tell us unless this relationship is right. He's got the order here for a reason. You start with this relationship with God before you go into loving and showing hospitality and exercising spiritual gifts and things like that that this passage talks about. It starts with strong relationship with God. That's what it begins with. Be sober, spirit, and alert, having sound judgment according to his will. So, if I'm going to have an impact on other people, then God has, I have to have, this has to impact me first. And that's why he moves to the horizontal next. See that in verse 8? Verse 8 says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. I have said so much about love. I don't, I don't want to exhaust this. I, you know, there's, there's just so much you can say. It's so important. But I do want to say some things here about what Peter says. Matthew 24, Matthew 24 says, in the last days, uh, there will be lawlessness and it will increase and most people's love will grow cold. That's interesting. In the last days, Jesus says, before I return, people are going to be more and more lawless. And he's going to say their love will grow cold. And so here's telling us to be the exact opposite of what's going on around us. Be fervent in your love. And I think his primary concern here is our love for other believers. And it's not that he's not concerned about our love for unbelievers. But just keep in mind, what is our evangelism tool reaching unbelievers? It's our love for one another. John 13. When they see our love for each other, they'll know we belong to Christ. So I need to be strengthened in this relationship with God so that I can, love can flow out of my life. I need to be just overwhelmed with God's love for me. God's love for me as a sinner. And then I need to be willing to fervently love others. The word above all, you see that in verse 8, means it's on top. Love is at the top. It's, it's paramount to Christian living. And so, you know, after you've strengthened your relationship with God, now you turn to others in love. Colossians 3.14 says this way, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And the closer we get to the end, the contrast, I think, becomes more apparent. As worldly-minded people continue to devour each other, we as believers need to be fervent in our love for each other. The word fervent is an interesting word. It means to stretch, like you're stretching a muscle. It's like you're taking one of these violin strings and stretching it as far as it will go. The muscle of straining for the finish line is used in secular literature for a horse that was running at full capacity. This is that, this is, love is tough. Love is tough. It's hard because you, you have unlovely people around you at times and difficult people and people that don't love you and all of that and, or don't treat you kindly or whatever. He says you love. 
You, 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 you go beyond your limit. You, you stretch it. When you think you've gone as far as you can, go further. It's the idea of fervent. It's used earlier in First um, uh, Peter 1. Turn back there, First Peter chapter 1. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, First Peter 1.22. Since you have in obedience, verse 22 says, to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. He uses that same word in verse 22. Fervently love one another from the heart. You've been born again. You have the capacity to do this. He's not telling you to do something that he has not planted in you. He has planted this capacity to love. In fact, he's planted the capacity to fervently love. And I'm born again. And the obvious uh, evidence I'm born again with this imperishable seed is this love. That's how I know, that's how you know you belong to Christ, is your love for others, your love for, the, love for other believers. This is a love that desires the welfare of the one who's loved, not the kind that you toss out, uh, not the kind that's unpredictable, not the kind that's of human emotion, that's here today and gone tomorrow. It's not that. It's not sentimentalism. It's not demeaning. It's, not, it, it, it's sacrificial. It's intense, sacrificial love. It's the highest good of the one that you're loving, even if it's expense, at your expense. And like I said, it crosses the barrier of human emotion. It just, don't even think that way about it. It, it loves the unlovely, it, the unlovable. It loves your enemies, it, those who mistreat you, those who misunderstand you, those who misrepresent you. It, it just, you just keep loving. It requires all your spiritual muscles. It's 1 Corinthians 13. We, we studied that a while back. 1 Corinthians 13, if you ever want to know what it means, say, some people say, well, it's all about love, it's all about this, well, you don't even know what you're talking about. You, what do you mean when you say love? What is love? It's a word that's thrown around all over the place. This is love. Love is patient, love is kind and not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Everything else fails. Love won't fail. So Peter gives, <laughs> gives us that instruction. And the incentive for doing that is because we have a sound mind and a sober spirit and we want unhindered communion with God. And the incentive for all of it is because he's coming again. See the motivation in verse 8? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Because love covers a multitude of sins. You know what destroys a church? You know what would destroy our church? When each of us goes around just being critical of each other because of all our shortcomings. If everybody just went around pointing out everybody's shortcomings to them all the time, that would destroy our church. 
That's why he says love is that perfect bond of unity because you know what it does? It covers a multitude of sins because there's a lot of sins represented in this congregation and in this pulpit. And love seeks to cover. Love doesn't seek to expose or to ridicule. Love doesn't seek to, uh, to bash somebody. Love forgives and forgives and forgives and keeps on forgiving. We're all sinners. We all are fallen sinners. We all mess up. We all offend and get offended. And the only thing that rides over those sins and keeps us together is love. That's it. That perfect bond of unity. When Peter was asked, how many times do I forgive my brother? Or when somebody repents, I keep on. He goes, you, seven times. He thought he was being magnanimous by saying seven times. He thought he was being above the law by saying seven times. And Jesus says, no, seven times 70. It means you never stop forgiving. You never stop. This is taken from Proverbs 10, 12, most likely. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. This is, an, this is axiomatic. This is basically a, a self-evident truth. Hatred will stir up strife. That's true. But love hides a multitude of sins, covers a multitude of sins, forgives and forgives. It's, that's, that's the nature of love. That's what he's trying to say in that proverb. The nature of love is that love does that. Whether it's, hum, whether it's your love that you show somebody else or God's love, it's just that mercy that we're showing to other people. It covers a multitude of sins. So this is how we're to function in the church. Overflowing love that covers each other's sins. Hatred, hatred wants to take every opportunity to divide us, Proverbs says. But genuine biblical love looks at every offense as an opportunity to show grace. Wayne Grudem said this, where love abounds in the fellowship of Christians, many small offenses are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion and every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. Yeah, that's true. Where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion and every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound. And don't misunderstand, Christian love is not blind to sin. I don't think he's talking here about our sins to God as much as he's talking about our sins to each other. But the point is we're not talking about being blind to the fact that we're a sin. That's not the point here at all. Um, we're, we're not talking about church discipline. That's another section. We're, but we're talking about, in fact, church discipline is only after a patient uh, appeals for repentance, seeking the best for somebody, even in that. So it's not that you're saying we're just going to cover up, cover up some scandal or something. That's not the point of this at all. We're talking about those just those sins that happen because we're sinners that live among sinners and we sin against each other. So don't take this to the point where a cover-up is a good thing. It's not saying that. It's just saying the very nature of love is not to divide us. The very nature of love is to seek an opportunity to extend grace. 
and where there's a sin that needs to be confronted or dealt with that's done also in a context of love. Someone has said love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes out a fire. That's true. Always being ready to forgive. So what is Peter saying to us? That the key to the bond of unity in the church is love. Our motivation to be fervent in our love is the second coming of Christ. May he find his church loving and united in love. This is difficult and it's challenging and that's why the word fervent is there because he knows it's going to take everything we've got to do it. Peter says we need to recognize that what's foremost of importance is our own relationship with God and that we are in communion with God because our minds and our hearts are holy and pure. It it's, it's, does us no good to be hypocritical and, and act outside one way when something else is going on on the inside that's ungodly. All of our godly actions are just hypocrisy in that context. And so he's given instruction here, given instruction to the church. And next time we'll talk about hospitality and next time we'll talk about uh, the stewardship of spiritual gifts because those are other ways that that love is shown in the church. And those are things that we need to see as well. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so thankful to you today that we can look at these verses and these these passages and, and just think about the hope that we have that one day you will return and one day you will come again and, and you will make the wrongs right and you will bring justice to all the injustice in this world. And Father, you will set up your kingdom and you will reign and you will rule and you will be supreme and you'll have dominion and glory over everything. And God, as we live in light of that, help us to be those who bring honor and glory to you by the way we live our lives. May we recognize that this is our duty. This is our duty in this, this world. And I pray that we would be foremost in our minds, God, would be that we look to you for the strength to do it all. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.